If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Shannon Bream. As Israeli ground troops go deeper into Gaza to take down Hamas, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken makes a surprise trip to the West Bank today as he tries to stop the conflict from widening throughout the region. Meanwhile, here in Washington, a major roadblock on Capitol Hill. The future of the House-approved standalone aid package for Israel in limbo. The House bill is dead on arrival in the Senate. A big win for the new Speaker of the House could be short-lived, as critical funding for Israel's fight against Hamas and Ukraine's against Russia gets caught up in political wrangling. We want to uh, pair border security with Ukraine because I think we get bipartisan agreement on both of those matters. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson will join us exclusively to talk about his first full week on the job and his plan to avoid a government shutdown just days from now. And we provided Israel advice that only the best of friends can offer on how to minimize civilian deaths while still achieving its objectives of finding and finishing Hamas terrorists. Secretary Blinken back in the Middle East meeting with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. While back home, thousands of pro-Palestinian demonstrators turn out on the streets of America calling for a ceasefire. Democratic Chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee Jack Reed joins us only on Fox News Sunday. Then, Election Day just two days away in key bellwether states for next year's presidential election, including Battleground, Ohio. Abortion is on the ballot, and whether the right to have one should be added to the state's constitution. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine joins us exclusively. Plus, Republicans look to win a trifecta government in Virginia. We'll look at what a big win could mean for Governor Youngkin's political future. And ask our Sunday panel about who needs to have the biggest night in this week's third GOP presidential debate. All right now on Fox News Sunday. And hello from Fox News in Washington. Israel's ground assault into Gaza continues as Israeli troops battle Hamas militants in the aftermath of the October 7th attacks on Israel. Back stateside. Tens of thousands of pro-Palestinian protesters flooded the streets of the nation's capital, demanding not only a ceasefire in the conflict, but also an end to any U.S. military aid to Israel. It all comes at a tense time for Congress. There's a brand new Speaker of the House looking to make his first mark, decoupling Israel and Ukraine aid, a move that appears to face a certain death in the Senate. And yet another government shutdown is looming. In a moment, we will speak exclusively with the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. But first, we turn to Fox News foreign correspondent Trey Yingst on the ground at the Israel-Gaza border with the very latest. And I understand, Trey, you may have some incoming fire there. Yeah, Shannon, you don't see me on camera right now. We just had sirens sounding. And in this location, we've got about 10 seconds to get to cover. This area has taken a number of direct hits over the past several days. But this comes as the fighting rages on inside Gaza nearly a month into the war between Israel and Hamas. We got a first-hand look at the battles unfolding inside the Gaza Strip. 
Israeli bulldozers, flanked by tanks and machine guns, push deep into Gaza. Nearly a month into the war and more than a week into the ground invasion, these troops must fight for each block of territory. For the first time since the conflict erupted, the Israel Defense Forces are taking a small group of journalists into the fight. Right now we're with the Israeli military in an armored personnel carrier. The Israelis have cut the Gaza Strip in half. They've fought their way to the Mediterranean Sea and encircled Gaza City. They're waiting now for the orders to go farther in. Seconds after arriving on the outskirts of Gaza City, the crack of gunfire pierces the air. So right now we are in the... Israeli troops move carefully over mounds of dirt and debris. They understand Hamas can target them from above and below ground. We find two tunnels, and now we're going to destroy them. While Israeli troops focus their efforts on destroying the extensive tunnel network of Hamas, Palestinian militants are still able to surprise and ambush them. Right now, the Israelis are engaged in a gun battle with Hamas militants inside the Gaza Strip. They are working at this hour to go block by block and clear this area trying to get to the Mediterranean Sea, effectively cutting the northern part of Gaza from the southern part. As this is taking place, they've been ambushed. They've lost more than two dozen of their own soldiers, and the battle continues. Eight days ago, the Israelis invaded with two missions to hunt down Hamas leadership and bring hostages home. The latter is proving to be far more difficult. We know that the hostages are most of them inside Gaza City and not inside the suburbs area, inside, but inside the tunnels under, underneath the city. We're doing everything we can in order to free them. Lieutenant Colonel Gilad Pasternak is fighting his third war. The 38-year-old is in charge of five battalions. His soldiers include those like Jeremiah Wallace, who's originally from Philadelphia. He moved to Israel and joined the army. Now he points to why the war began. We're here, we're coming after terrorists, we're coming after people that came into Israel. Um, they killed civilians, killed men, women, children, um, kidnapped them as well. And we're coming, we're coming back for them, and we won't leave until, until, that's, until that's taken care of. Something that struck me was the level of destruction inside Gaza. Currently, there are more than a million Palestinian civilians internally displaced. Many of them have no homes to return to. Shannon. Trey Yangst, thank you to you and your team for taking us places no one else is going. We so appreciate it. Thank you, Trey. Fox News' Alexandria Hoff is traveling with the president. She joins us now from Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, where the president continues to be briefed. Hello, Alex. Hello, Shannon, and good morning to you. Yeah, aside from uh, briefings from Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, all has been quiet here in Delaware. The president, 100 miles away from the White House, where last night pro-Palestinian protesters, they vandalized a fence and attempted to climb a wrought iron gate. We are told no arrests were made. The demonstrators were voicing anger for the president's support of Israel and refusal to back a ceasefire. Instead, the administration has been pushing for a humanitarian pause and military operation in Gaza to get aid in and hostages out. The president was asked about that yesterday. Mr. President, any progress on the humanitarian pause? Yes. 
president gave a yes there, thumbs up. The idea was seemingly, though, rejected by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu when Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Tel Aviv on Friday. Israeli officials want Hamas to release the some 240 hostages first. And Blinken dismissed calls this weekend by Arab leaders for the U.S. to back an immediate ceasefire. We are still asking for an immediate ceasefire and that Israel would stop hindering the delivery of humanitarian aid. It's our view that uh, a ceasefire now would simply leave Hamas in place, able to regroup and repeat what it did on October 7th. A ceasefire was also likely urged by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas when Blinken made an unannounced stop in the West Bank today. Meanwhile, the USS Eisenhower aircraft carrier strike group has now made it to the Red Sea, joining a mass of naval power intended to send a message to Hezbollah and Iran that the U.S. is prepared to strike if any U.S. interests are harmed. And on Capitol Hill, another message for new House Speaker Mike Johnson after the House approved more than $14 billion in aid for Israel in a standalone bill funded by cuts to the IRS. The president would veto an only Israel bill. We, I think that we've made that clear. Now, the House did reject a more broad $106 billion aid package that was requested by the president that include aid for Ukraine as well, Shannon. Right, Alexandria Hoff with the president in Delaware. Alex, thank you. Joining us now is the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Welcome to Fox News Sunday. Hey, Shannon. Great to be with you. All right, I want to play a little bit more of what happened here in Washington yesterday. Estimates are that this pro-Palestine rally was up to 100,000 people. We've got images of it and of what transpired last night when some of them took to the White House, defacing one of the gates there, climbing onto the gates. Um, are you surprised at all by the amount that we've seen um, of this kind of response? And, and I have to be fair, a lot of people I saw in that rally yesterday were very much worried about civilian lives that are being lost um, in Gaza. But there were others who were saying things that were clearly indicative of making sure that Israel no longer exists on the world map. Yes. No, we it is surprising to see this level of anti-Semitism that has sprung up around the country. Apparently, it's been dormant for a while, but this has given uh, rise to that. And, and we're deeply concerned about it. The opening of the program today, Shannon, I think gave a great snapshot of the crisis that Israel faces. And that's why right out of the blocks, as soon as I became speaker, within the hour, we passed a resolution to make clear that Congress stands by our great friend in that region. We always will. And then we passed, as you saw, our first priority is an emergency immediate funding aid to Israel so that they can defeat Hamas and protect and, and continue as a nation. That's what's at stake. I spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu on Saturday evening a week ago, and he said this is a battle between good versus evil, light versus darkness. I could not agree more, and I think the whole world can see that. So you passed the standalone measure, but the man who runs the Senate, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, has this to say about what you passed in the House. The proposal is simply not a serious one, and worse, it still wastes precious time at a moment when we need to help Israel, Ukraine, and send humanitarian aid to Gaza, ASAP. And it's not just Democrats. This is the headline from The Hill. McConnell and Speaker Johnson sharply divided on the year-end strategy. So Democrat and Republican leaders over in the Senate say there's no way the standalone measure gets anywhere. The White House has said it would veto it anyway. So with time of the essence, the urgency here, 
Why waste time on a measure that has almost zero chance of actually aiding the Israeli people? Shannon, it's really surprising to hear Senator Schumer say that it's not a serious uh, proposal. It's exactly what was requested, $14.5 billion. What they don't like is that in the House, we're trying to be good stewards of the taxpayers' resources. We offset that spending. Instead of printing new dollars and or borrowing it from another nation to send over to fulfill our obligations and help our ally, we want to pay for it. What a concept. We're trying to change how Washington works. And so by taking that money from this giant fund, over $67 billion that's sitting there to build up the IRS, we weighed those priorities and said, you know what? It's more important to protect Israel right now than it is to hire more IRS agents. Apparently, well, Senator Schumer disagrees with that, but I'll take that debate to the American people all day long. Well, and, and he's pointing, as others are, to the Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan group that scores these things. And they said, actually, if you take that funding from the IRS, it's going to add billions to the deficit because you cut IRS personnel. They're not then collecting that revenue that they bring in. One of your House colleagues, Democrat Brendan Boyle, put it this way. He says, you are prioritizing, quote, deficit-busting tax giveaways for the wealthy over helping Israel. Look, only in Washington can you cut funding add a pay-for to a new spending measure, and they say that it's, it's terrible for the deficit. Listen, we're trying to take care of our priorities, and we will. We, we know that these other important measures are right there on the table, and we're working through it hour by hour, day by day, and we're going to meet those obligations. But we have to do these things in the, in the proper order, and we are committed to changing how Washington works. I think you see a united and energized House Republican conference. All of our members are working together in good faith, trying to solve these great challenges that we face. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that we're going to do that. But we are going to also change the trajectory we're on. Shannon, right now we have a 336 trillion dollar federal debt. Just last week, the Treasury Department and the Biden administration announced that we're going to have to borrow over $1.5 trillion over the next two quarters, six months, to continue our operation as a government. This is not a sustainable track. We can take care of our obligations, and we can do it in a responsible manner, and that's what we're committed to. Okay, so there's been talk that you want to quickly offer up Ukraine aid, of course, in a separate measure, potentially tying the U.S. border uh, and security issues to that. group of Democrats say this, and there's opposition from both sides of the aisle on that plan as well, but they say Republicans can't move their extreme, cruel, anti-immigrant agenda through the regular legislative process. So they're trying to make an end run around Congress and exploit two foreign wars to force it into law. They say Republicans don't actually want to work on things that would change the problems at the border, um, beefing up porter, port entry uh, personnel, things like more legal pathways to citizenship um, and getting at the root causes, causes of migration. So are there things that you can work on that you can get bipartisan buy-in in attaching that to Ukraine aid? Or is this going to be about holding your caucus together and getting all the Republican votes where you have a very small majority? What this is about is advancing the agenda and the first priority is the American people. I don't know which Democrat gave you that absurd quote, but they clearly are not listening to their constituents. If you go out into the country, people will say, look, we understand our role as a leader in the free world. We understand that we're the great superpower that, that needs to assist and ensure that freedom survives. But we have to take care of our own house first. And securing our border is an essential priority to the American people. So they're not listening to their constituents. That, I think that's a, a tone-deaf response. 
again, we can do all of these things together. But when, when you couple Ukraine and the border, that makes sense to people because they say, if we're going to protect Ukraine's border and we, do, we have to do what is necessary there, we don't want Vladimir Putin to prevail. We can't afford that. The free world can't afford that. But we have to take care of our own border first. And that's what we're saying. This is policy changes that are necessary. There's a growing consensus in the Congress, certainly amongst Republicans, but also even some across the aisle who recognize we have to change what is happening. Over 6.3 million illegal crossings since Joe Biden took office. It's more than the population of my state. We cannot continue this, and everyone knows it. And the fentanyl that's come over the border, the human trafficking, the cartels making billions of dollars on our backs, we are going to stop that, and the House Republicans are committed to it. I think the people are with us, Shannon. So as we talk about spending more dollars on those things, our border, Ukraine, uh, more tax dollars flowing into those things, we're running out of money here again in a couple of weeks. Are we going to have another continuing resolution, that temporary financial Band-Aid? How long would it last? Would it be clean? Or are you going to try to attach other things to it? The reason I look a little haggard this morning, uh, Shannon, is because I was up late last night. We worked through the weekend on a stopgap measure. We recognize that we may not get all the appropriations bills done by this deadline of November 17th, but we are going to continue in good faith. And the difference between what we call on Capitol Hill a continuing resolution now and what we've dealt with in years past is that this would allow us time, and everybody understands, allow us time to continue this appropriations process. We're committed to bringing 12 bills to the floor as the law uh, statutory law requires Congress to do. That hasn't been done in many years. But again, we're changing the way Washington works because we believe it needs to be more accountable and more transparent for the people. And so we're going to fight that fight every single day and, and we'll get that job done. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about some social issues. You've got a lot of critics who say that you are wildly out of step with the American people. Let's talk abortion first. One of the groups opposing you says this. He wants a total abortion ban with no exceptions. He supported bans that would not only criminalize abortion, but ban IVF treatments and common forms of birth control, and that you voted against access to contraception. Where are you on these issues? Is that an accurate assessment of where you are? Because that's not in step with the American people. No, Shannon, look, I'm, I'm pro-life. I've, I've said very clearly I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe in the sanctity of every single human life. So I come to Congress with deep personally held convictions. But guess what? So do my 434 other colleagues in the House. Everyone comes to Congress with their deeply held convictions. But the process here is that you make law by consensus. And I've not brought forward any measure uh, to, to address any of those issues. Right now, our priorities are funding the government, handling these, these massive national security uh, priorities that we have in, in crises around the globe and, and taking care of changing and reforming how Congress works. That's what we're going to do. Listen, I, prior to uh, the modern time, I mean, until recently, actually, almost all of our nation's leaders openly acknowledged that they were also Bible-believing Christians. Uh, I mean, this is not a, 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 something that should cause great unrest, okay? It's just that Washington right now, what you're seeing, Washington and the Associated Press Corps are engaging with a leader who openly acknowledges faith and and, and the, the foundational principles of our, our country. Okay, I think this is a healthy discussion, to, but it, it doesn't affect how we run Congress. To be clear, though, have you voted against fertility treatments and access to contraception? Would you? I don't, I don't think so. I'm not sure what they're talking about. I, I really don't remember any but, of those But measures, do you oppose anything? I am personally pro-life, yeah. No, no, of course not. I, no, that, that's uh, something that's blessed a lot of families who have, have uh, problems with fertility. Of course, that's a great thing. Um, I would support that. But 
Look, again, these are not issues that are on the, the front of the agenda, and um, we can come with our convictions, and we can govern in an accountable, transparent manner for the American people, and that's what, that's what we're going to do. Okay, so you've talked a lot about your faith. Um, you don't backtrack. You're not shy about that. You're bold about that. You said if people want to know the, your worldview, go open up the Bible. You know that concerns a lot of people. Your critics are, are hearkening back to things um, that you've said about gay marriage, homosexuality, conversion therapy. Um, there's a lengthy guest essay in the New York Times, not surprisingly not big fans of yours. It's titled this, The Embodiment of White Christian Nas Nationalism in a Tailored Suit. Um, they point to a definition in Christianity today of that, saying it's a belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Is that an accurate description of your view of how the government should function? No, I'm not even sure what the term means. And look, there are entire industries uh, built on taking down, tearing down people like me. I understand that comes with the territory, and, and we're not phased by it. But listen, what, what I believe in are the founding principles of the country, individual freedom, limited government, the rule of law, peace through strength, fiscal responsibility, free markets, human dignity. Those are essential American principles. And so I've been labeled all kinds of stuff, but these people don't know me. I, look, my, my family, it's no fun to be misquoted and maligned and, and mocked, of course, but we know that comes with a job. And we're in phase. We're going to continue to love all people. We're going to continue to bless even those who persecute us because that's, that's our worldview and that's how we operate. And, and if people just, everybody take a breath, give us a chance, and you'll see what principled governance looks like. That's what I'm committed to doing. Okay. we got to go, but I have to ask you this because there's been so much made about it. Vanity Fair says this. What's up with Mike Johnson's very shady-seeming financial disclosures? They say you've never reported a bank account or an asset on a financial disclosure form going back to 2016. Can you clear that up for us? Yes, look, I'm a man of modest means, okay? I was a lawyer, but I did constitutional law, and most of my career I spent in the nonprofit sector. We have four kids, five now, that are very active, and I have kids in, in graduate school, law school, undergraduate. Um, we have a lot of expenses, but I can relate to everybody else. My father was a firefighter, right? Um, I didn't grow up with great means, but... Um, I think that helps us be a better leader because we can relate to every hardworking American family. That's well, who we are. And I think it governs and helps govern my decisions and how I lead. Well, majority of Americans now say they're living paycheck to paycheck. So um, a lot of folks in the same boat uh, as they try to figure out this economy. Yeah. Speaker, um, we're wishing you the best in trying to keep the House running uh, and the country functioning. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Shannon. Congress clashes over how to fund urgent aid for Israel and Ukraine. You heard what the speaker said. We're going to bring in the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Democrat Jack Reed. He's just been in that region torn apart by war. Does he stand with Democrats insisting all of this aid be tied together, or is he open to whatever gets aid to Israel most quickly? We'll ask him next. I brought in Ensure Max Protein. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Following his surprise visit to the West Bank this morning, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling to Turkey. It's part of his Middle East trip hoping to keep the Israel-Hamas war from spreading. Blinken has also made stops in Israel and Jordan. Joining me now, someone who has also just been in the region, Rhode Island Democrat Jack Reedy is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Chairman, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Thank you very much, Shannon. 
Okay, so Secretary Blinken has just been with Mahmoud Abbas, and we have this readout um, from the administration. It says, the secretary expressed the commitment of the U.S. towards working toward the re realization of the Palestinians' legitimate aspirations for the establishment of a Palestinian state. Do you think, though, that that's something that Hamas would allow? Or even if that solution was worked out, would they continue, do you believe, to be about the extermination of Israel as a nation? Well, Hamas is committed to the extermination of Israel. That's why Israel is engaged uh, in attacking, degrading, and ultimately uh, defeating uh, Hamas. What we have to do is not speak to Hamas. They are intolerant. We have to speak to the Palestinian people. We have to give them hope. We have to give them an aspiration so that they will break with Hamas and they will begin to support, uh, we hope, a, a stable and peaceful uh, region in, the, in that whole area. So Secretary Blinken now continues on to Turkey. We talked last week about the fact that they're a NATO ally, but Erdogan is there talking about Israel as an occupier, as committing war crimes. What should the secretary's message be as he visits in Turkey? I think the secretary's message is, first, uh, we cannot let this conflict expand into other areas, and Turkey can play a key role in containing this conflict. Second, I think he can explain how we are trying to advise, assist uh, the Israeli forces so that they, one, are much more uh, strategic and much more precise in their targeting, and two, that they recognize that uh, helping the Palestinian people is not just a good thing to do, it is a smart tactical move because what you want to do is separate Hamas from the Palestinian people. And you do that by making it appear, in fact, making it a reality, that they can find some support, medical support, humanitarian support uh, within the Israel uh, lines, and they can't find that within Hamas's controlled territory. So there's also Hezbollah out there. There are leaders speaking out Friday saying um, that the U.S. is responsible in part for what's going on in Gaza, that we must be the ones to stop it, that they would overwhelm U.S. forces. They're not afraid of our warships, those kinds of things. How worried are you about a couple of things? Hezbollah opening up a separate front to the north and about U.S. troops at any point being dragged into this conflict? Well, first, uh, the speech by the leader of Hezbollah was uh, not unexpected. Second, uh, we've moved in carrier task force groups uh, to augment uh, our deterrence efforts in the region, and I think they're very conscious of that, uh, particularly our anti-missile capabilities, uh, which are significant and can prevent uh, an attack by Hezbollah on, on Israel and open up a, another front. I think also, too, is that we are trying, as I said, to help Israel focus and refocus its efforts to be more precise in its targeting and to give less of a rationale for some people who would attack Israel on political grounds. So you are among those um, who are publicly saying we do want Israel to be more precise. Secretary Blinken says we've given them advice that a close friend would give them. But keep in mind, this is what we're he hearing from uh, a leader of Hamas who talked about the fact that the October 7th attacks were just the beginning. He added this. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. The Al-Aqsa flood is just the first time, and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. He went on to say that that means the annihilation of Israel. So should any country be lecturing Israel in any way about how they deal with a group that is truly an existential threat to them? 
Hamas is an existential threat to Israel. Uh, they make no bones about it, as that statement uh, indicates very clearly. Uh, and what Israel is doing, appropriately so, is targeting Hamas to degrade it and then destroy it. And we are helping them in that effort. It is somewhat reminiscent of our efforts against ISIS in Iraq. Uh, but what they have to do, not only for the complying with the rule of law, but also winning uh, the battle of uh, minds and hearts is to do it in such a way as that they don't or they minimize the harm to civilians. Uh, and that's what we're trying to help them with. We want them to get better intelligence. We're helping them with intelligence. We want that intelligence to inform selected targets, precise targets. want them to use precision-guided weapon systems with smaller diameter bombs so they really hit the people they're going after. And then we want them also to be able to show how not just Israel, but the entire world community wants to provide the basic necessities to the Palestinian people. This would deliver a blow, not just tactically, but also politically to Hamas. And the goal is to end that threat to Israel, which is existential. Hamas mm -hmm. does want to destroy the state of Israel. Let's talk about aid, because you heard the speaker at the beginning of the show talking about Israel standalone aid was what he could get passed in the House. That was what the appetite was there. We know it's different over in the Senate. Um, and there's talk of, again, linking it together with Ukrainian aid. But it was interesting that Gallup poll shows now that Americans are growing skeptical of providing unlimited continued aid to Ukraine. The number of Americans who say the U.S. is doing too much in that particular conflict has jumped 12 points since just June. Do you worry that tagging those things together may slow down as Ukraine is less popular, the aid actually getting to Israel in a more timely fashion? No, I don't. I think on the Senate side, there's strong bipartisan uh, support for aid not only to Israel but to Ukraine and immediately. Ukraine is running down its resources. They're in the midst of a very serious conflict with the Russians. The Russians uh, may have staged a major counterattack weeks ago. And there are intense casualties on both sides, particularly the Russian side. So we can't just step back and let time uh, go by. And we have to support the Ukrainians. And it's our interest. And frankly, and when I was talking to Secretary Austin at the hearing on the appropriations, uh, he indicated, which I believe, is, listen, if we don't provide these resources to Ukraine right now, it raises the probability that in the months or years ahead, we'll have to send American forces it's better, in my view, to support the Ukrainian people now and their forces than to see a situation where we are pulled into a conflict with our young men and women. So this is a not only the right thing to do, it's, a, I think, a very, very smart thing to do. Well, we will watch as that fight plays out on Capitol Hill. Uh, Senator, we thank you for your time in uniform, defending you, and Shannon. serving this country and for being with us today, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Up next, abortion is on the ballot this week. Ohio voters go into the polls Tuesday to decide whether to amend the state's constitution to provide more abortion access in the wake of the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe. Governor Mike DeWine joins us live. But first, Fox's Rich Edson takes us to Virginia, where Governor Glenn Youngkin's working overtime on state elections there this week. And President Obama getting involved, too. Election Day is two days away for parts of the country. All eyes are on four states watching for clues about what this week could tell us about how voters are feeling about 2024. Key gubernatorial races are taking place in Kentucky and Mississippi. 
Kentucky's election featuring an opportunity for Republicans to try to flip the governor's seat red, while Mississippi's GOP governor Tate Reeves is hoping to win his second term in a race that is tighter than expected. In Ohio, voters will decide on the state's abortion and marijuana laws. In a moment, we will bring in Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to talk about the stakes there. But first, Virginia, certainly one of the states to watch and could be a preview of what's to come next year. Fox News' Rich Edson is live in Richmond with the very latest. Hey, Rich. Hey, Shannon. Well, there's been persistent speculation surrounding Governor Glenn Youngkin's presidential ambitions. For now, he's focused on elections here in Virginia and a test of whether he can deliver his party the power to set the state agenda. What time is it? Time to win. Governor Glenn Youngkin is campaigning across Virginia, trying to flip the Senate, hold on to the House of Delegates, and deliver Republicans control of the state government. These races are incredibly tight, and we need to get everybody out to vote. And that's why we've been working so hard on early voting. Every Senate and House seat is up this election, and there are only a handful of competitive races. Republicans are promising to build on their agenda. They say to give parents a greater say in their child's education. They also want to pass limits on abortions beyond 15 weeks. And this race is attracting attention from outside the state. I know what it feels like when you're on the cusp of a big victory, and that's exactly what I'm feeling. Halfway across the country, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir is campaigning for his own election. In every corner of our Commonwealth, what I see is hope and optimism. Bashir is one of the few Democratic governors in a state former President Trump won by more than 25 percentage points in 2020. Donald Trump endorsed this campaign for governor, and uh, he feels very strongly about my ability to lead this state. Ohio is also voting on whether to legalize recreational marijuana. If so, it'll become the 24th state to do so. Shannon. All right, we're tracking it. Rich reporting in Virginia for us. Thank you so much. Joining me now, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Governor, welcome to Fox News Sunday. Good morning. Good to be with you. Thank okay, you. Okay, so let's talk about this abortion issue. Issue one on the ballots there. Um, Democrats say that it proves that the right is as extreme as they've warned everyone that they are. Here's one supporter saying this. What Republicans, frankly, have done in this environment is they've created a window for advocates on the left today to say this. See, look, this is what we've been talking about. Our greatest fears, our nightmares are coming true, and this is our time to stand up and fight back. Abortion measures generally have not done well in the post-Obs decision after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. Are you worried about the backlash on Republicans next week in your state? No. If you look at issue one, uh, it's a radical proposal. And whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, uh, it just goes much, much too far. Uh, it would enshrine in our Constitution uh, the right to have an abortion up until birth. So it any time during the pregnancy. The second thing it would do is, is really threaten a law that we've had on the books for many years that requires parental consent if we're dealing with a minor. So the lawyers who wrote this were very mindful for what they were doing. Uh, it is a radical proposal. It does not fit Ohio. And that's what's going to be voted on uh, in, in, in two days. Okay. So, uh, I, yeah, sure. I was going to say, so let's read some of the language of this measure. Um, it says that the patient's treating physician, the pregnant woman, um, they have a, the ability to determine if the fetus has a significant likelihood of survival outside the uterus 
with reasonable measures. The AP puts it this way. It says, Ohio lawmakers could still restrict abortion beyond the point when a fetus can survive outside the womb. And with modern medicine, referred to the point of as viability, is typically about 23 or 24 weeks into pregnancy. There's wide support across the country for that. There is still the issue of viability. They, you know, critics will argue that what you're saying is it's not true that it's up until the moment of birth. Your response? No, that's just absolutely not true. Constitutional scholars who have looked at that certainly have a very different opinion. First of all, the viability question will be determined by the person performing the abortion at the Planned Parenthood or wherever that is being done. So that's the person who's going to determine it, and there's no review of that. Second, there is a wide, wide exception written into this law, which talks about the health of the mother. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has defined this extremely broadly. It can be, health can mean something having to do with her, her uh, income. It can have something to do with about children she has. And again, it is the person performing the abortion uh, in that clinic who's going to make that determination. And there's no review of it. Uh, so as a practical matter, uh, they were very mindful, the lawyers, uh, very mindful what they were, language they were using. Uh, this allows abortion at any point in the pregnancy. And that is just much, much too far. We've had on the books, for example, in Ohio, a, a law that deals with partial birth abortion and, and prohibits that. Uh, we had a doctor in Dayton, Ohio, who was performing these. Uh, we stopped that because of the law in Ohio. This constitutional amendment, because it is a constitutional amendment, uh, not just a law, it would be a constitutional amendment, would, would trump uh, that law as well as it would trump the parental consent law. So a very, uh, a proposal that is just way too far, and again, whether someone is pro-choice or pro-life, uh, this is just not where the majority of Ohioans are. So one of your fellow governors uh, over in Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, um, he's been pouring money into a number of state efforts, including this one in Ohio. His new organization is called Think Big America. He says it's this, dedicated to safeguarding reproductive rights and standing up against the right-wing extremists who want to take us backwards. He says folks like you want to ban books, you want to um, ban um, voting <laughs> rights and civil rights, that you want to send women back to a time where they didn't have choices about their bodies. How do you respond to your fellow governor? Well, that's just absurd, and he, <clears throat> he knows that's absurd. He knows me. That's not what we're trying to do at all. It's interesting. The, the pro side in this has spent about $35 million uh, to try to mislead the voters of the state of Ohio. It's interesting to me that a governor of Illinois would come in with a half a million dollars uh, contribution. If you look at all the other people who are doing this, these are the same people who want to get outside their own state and want to control what's going on uh, in other states. Uh, we've only, we have about 10 million, so it's been about three and a half to one, but our message is really, really clear. This is just whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, this is just much, much too far. All right. Governor DeWine, this is certainly a state we will be watching on Tuesday. You've also got a measure on marijuana. We're out of time, but um, folks can research that as well. Governor, we appreciate your time. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. All right. High stakes off your elections in key states like Ohio. Give us a preview of how voters are feeling heading into the critical 2024 cycle. Our Sunday panel on what the results this week could tell us about next year's race for the White House. Coming up. For a deeper dive on all the big issues this week, including Tuesday's elections, let's bring in our Sunday group, Olivia Beavers, congressional reporter for Politico, Fox News senior political analyst Juan Williams, 
Guy Benson, host of The Guy Benson Show and former Bush national security official, Michael Allen, welcome to all of you. So I want to pick up where we left off with the governor in Ohio. We do have important state elections this week. One of them involves um, Governor Glenn Youngkin, who's trying to prove his win was not a fluke in Virginia, which is very blue these days. This issue of abortion, um, new polling shows us it is something that Virginia voters are very dialed into. Here is what Youngkin says. He argues that his proposal, which is a 15-week abortion limit with exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother, represents a politically acceptable compromise between those who want to ban all abortions and those who would see no legal limits. He's quoted as saying people recognize that's a reasonable place. Guy, that's just one of the issues on the ballot, essentially, not, not you know, legitimately, but... In theory. Yeah, and it's a completely reasonable position. It's sort of a European-style proposal. The Democrats, the ads they're running on this, are suggesting that the Republicans would ban every abortion ever in Virginia, which isn't true. What I'm struck by watching this Virginia race develop is, number one, Governor Yunkin is very popular mm -hmm. in the Commonwealth. He's got plus 20, plus 25 approval rating. Can he parlay that into coattails, down ballot? He's working very hard. He's very invested in this race. The other dynamic that I'm seeing is the Democrats are running their 2022 playbook, which was pretty successful for them. Mm -hmm. Trump, MAGA, abortion distortions, in my view, on the latter part. The Republicans in Virginia are running the 2021 successful playbook that Yunkin won with on schools, education, crime, economy, and that sort of thing. It will be fascinating on Tuesday mm -hmm. to see which, two, which of those two approaches prevails. Yeah, and if you live in Virginia or anywhere in this area, you are seeing the ads not yes. stop. And you're ready <laughs> for that election to be over. Um, but let's look to Kentucky as well, because there's a tight governor's race there. Um, the current governor, Andy Bashir is a Democrat. Uh, he is up against uh, increasingly popular. The polling shows this is tightened with the AG there, Daniel Cameron. Um, the New York Times says this, though. Bashir is doing whatever he can to separate himself from Mr. Biden, whose approval ratings remain mired around 40 percent nationally and are much lower in Kentucky. Juan, what about that race? Well, you're gonna, Bashir is like one of the most popular mm -hmm. governors in the country, I think, like number five. And this, the, the key point here is with Bashir, a Democrat in a red state, is not to think so much party affiliation as to think good governance, like, you know, who's getting the roads paved, who's doing this or that. And then you get into some really difficult issues, as we saw in the debate this week, where, you know, Cameron was asked about something like vouchers, and you would think for Republicans that's a strong point, but in rural areas of the state, they see that as a threat to their public schools, so he wouldn't say his position, similarly on Medicaid. Uh, you know, he's, he's very, he has sort of a halting, stuttering way of dealing with this issue, but it's very popular in the state. So I think Bashir is in, a, in, the, in the cat seat there. Well, in, in Mississippi, you got a governor's race there with an incumbent Republican. Um, Cook Political Report says this. They've moved the race from likely to lean Republican. So that's a race that's been tighter than expected. But some brand new polling out this week takes us more broadly to the 24 races. We look to these states to see if we can gather anything about how voters feel about next year. The New York Times Siena College has a new poll out, six swing states. And um, President Trump is leading President Biden in five of those six states. Um, Olivia, that's tough news for the White House this morning. And some of these, the margins are not close at all. No, there's in Nevada, there's a 10 point lead for Trump. I would say this is pretty devastating. It was going over issues where they feel like Donald Trump is prevailing on economy, on national security, on border and immigration, which are some of the top issues of this upcoming election, um, where they felt like Biden, which we were talking about, is leading is abortion. Um, he has time to make it up. But right now, these are so many points that if he lost those states in the Electoral College, he would be in big trouble. 
Yeah, and one of the issues, Michael, where he is upside down is on foreign policy. It was something that um, President Biden came in as Senator Biden saying, this is, you know, my portfolio. I know what I'm doing here. Um, the American public doesn't feel like he's delivering on these big foreign policy issues. And now he's got a new one on his plate. He does. Even when President Biden seems to stand strong, like he has in his support of Israel, I think the voters in the United States just view the uh, president very negatively. I think it's all seen through the framework of the economy, inflation, his ignoring of immigration all these years. So I think he is in a deep-seated free fall, and I can already hear the panic from the Democrats as they try to figure out what do you do with a candidate when 71% of the United States thinks you're too old to be president. And it's, not, and it's not just about age. I mean, it is the issues, Juan. I mean, people are unhappy with how he's performing. Right, but I think at this juncture, I think from the Democrats' point of view, what you have is the polls that are a referendum on Joe Biden. And there are lots of people who are upset about the wars that we're speaking about, Michael. Ukraine and obviously the events in the Middle East are quite upsetting. But also you have a broken Congress here on Capitol Hill. It looks dysfunctional. It looks like government's dysfunctional. So I think a lot of the angst, Shannon, gets directed to the guy who's in power. You just say, oh, you know, I'm sick of Washington. I'm sick works. of this. Yeah. Right. So he gets <laughs> it. But next year is not a matter of a referendum on Joe Biden. It becomes a choice election. And in a choice election, people then start to say, oh, gee, the Congress was broken. Oh, Donald Trump's an extremist. Oh, where are we but, going in the but world? the poll puts them up against each other. I hear you. Usually when you just ask about Biden... People say, he, I have a negative view. But here it's Trump versus Biden, and Biden is losing all over the place. Well, people and, people well, know Trump. People are very aware of who Donald Trump is and Everything's all of his baked issues. in with him. Yeah. You know? yeah. Okay, but you mentioned Democrats. This is an interesting headline from Axios. They said Thursday, Democratic governors and senators are quietly boosting their national profiles to set up presidential campaigns in 28 or 2024. With that in mind, here's something that Senator Fetterman said last night in Iowa. There are two additional Democrats running for Pennsylvania, excuse me, running for president right now. One, one is a congressman from Minnesota. The other one is the governor of California. <laughs> They're both running for president, but only one had the guts to announce it. Olivia, how uh, nervous do you think the White House is about that? Because, listen, Gavin Newsom, he just got back from meeting President Xi in China. He's doing all the things you would mm -hmm. be doing if you're running while saying, I would never run. Not never, but I'm not running this They're time. deferring, but they're doing it just in case is sort of their approach. And he's not the only one. You have Booker. Mm -hmm. um, you have Pritzker doing the abortion uh, campaigns. And look... They should. This is politics. You should be building up your profile if you're interested in running. They're just saying we're not going to challenge Biden. We're doing it, you know, well, they're not saying it. It's, it's implied in how they're operating. But they need to be building up their profile in case they need to step in, whether it's now or whether it's later, because we know that the next, next presidential election cycle will be very competitive um, with Democrats mm -hmm. looking to try to move up into the Maybe presidency. Maybe 24 instead of 28. But I want to make sure we get to these numbers on third-party threats because there's new polling out with Quinnipiac that should be giving a lot of pause to everybody who is thinking about running for president or currently running. When they looked at independents, if you add RFK Jr. into the mix, this is what they find. 36% among independents support Kennedy, 31% support Trump, and 30% support Biden. Um, Guy, there's growing concern on the left and the right about some of these independent runs. Yeah, and they're not really sure gaming out who would benefit more of the two major parties. I suspect that that number that we just saw from Quinnipiac is a reflection of the American people and independent voters being deeply dissatisfied with their two likeliest options ahead of next year, not so much 
a full embrace of RFK Jr. and all that he represents, I think those numbers would come down when people get a look at what he actually believes on a lot of issues. But it is useful because it, again, highlights how very unpopular both major party frontrunners are. Quick final word from you, Juan, because when you add Cornell West into these mi the mix as well, it's also not good for well, the primary frontrunners. Sure, because I think that right now lots of people, again, are looking and saying, gosh, the world is just falling apart. I'm tired. But you know what? Voters typically on independence, they kick the tires, and then those votes fade away. That's what we saw with, you know, Aunt John Anderson. That's what we saw with uh, recently Jill Stein. Well, We'll have to see because um, this could be an incredibly tight race. But based on the polling out of New York Times this morning, maybe not so much in some of those swing states. All right, panel, got to leave it there for this week. Up next, how you can help veterans reintegrate into civilian life with dignity after they've spent their lives serving our country. Okay, everyone. I believe all our veterans deserve dignity and independence. We want you to join us in making camo your cause in support of the U.S. Vets campaign, which aims to eradicate veteran homelessness. You can visit honor.usvets.org slash foxford. It's there on your screen. You got the QR code. You can donate and find some cool camo gear. You can also post your camo pics on social media with this hashtag, honorusvets. And share your message of thanks. If you donate between now and November 12th, you can pick up some swag being modeled by our panel today. Ties, which I tried to tie in the break. Mugs, shirts, and hats. Um, we love how you all look in this, and we want to celebrate our vets. Very nice. You even went with a shirt. I, like, <laughs> I like Guy shirt. did a better job tying the tie than I did during the commercial. It's hard to compete with Olivia and you. You guys look great. <laughs> Check it good. out. That's it for just today. Um, thanks for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. See you next week. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.